0: Let me open us with a word of prayer, and then I'll ask you to open your Bibles, and we'll get started with our teaching time. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. In an uncertain world, where daily we're bombarded by the news media with chaos, in essence, in our own country, politically, and at times economically, around the world, in many cases in terms of war and, and disasters, Lord, there is chaos, but we thank you for the anchor of Jesus. We thank you for who he is and what he's done for us as your children, but we also thank you, Lord, for the word of God that gives us certainty and security in the midst of these uncertain times. Lord, so much happens around us all the time that it can distract us. I pray that Thanksgiving that we celebrate as a country would not have been one of those things for us. I know at times holidays can be stressful and family dynamics can cause a day that should just be filled with joy and thanksgiving to be something less than that. But I pray for our hearts, that we would overflow with thanksgiving, that we would be grateful for our salvation, that we would be grateful for the blessings you've given us, that we would be grateful for the trials you've given us, that strengthen our faith and give us the ability to show Christ to a fallen world. And Lord, as I get into the text this morning, I pray that you give me clarity of thinking. I pray that I would be able to remember the points that I want to make, that I'd be able to follow my notes, and they wouldn't be a hindrance or distraction, but they would be of assistance to me in proclaiming your truth. And I pray, Lord, for our hearts, that we would hear your word, that we could apply it, Pray also for us to hear the word as Pastor Steve preaches this morning, that we would listen with ears to hear so that we wouldn't think about all the other people that need the truth, but rather we would think about how it applies to us. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing in a section of Scripture that I began to teach through in earnest last week. It's at 1 Peter chapter 2. You can turn there, 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're specifically in a section that's beginning at verse 21. Now, the reality is, I said I began teaching this section before. I began teaching this component. This verse is actually intimately connected to what begins at verse 18, even going back farther. Thematically, it's connected with what began at verse 13. But we are in a portion of scripture where Peter is trying to help Christians who have suffered, who are suffering, who have had hardship, who are in the middle of hardship. He's trying to help them live out their faith. The ultimate goal of being a Christian is never to completely isolate yourself and go live on a mountaintop by yourself somewhere. It actually would be easy. You wouldn't have much problem with people if you lived alone. Sadly, people did that centuries ago. Occasionally, somebody does that now. No, we're supposed to be light in a dark world, and to be light in a dark world, you have to be amongst the people where darkness is. And that's where we are. We work amongst unbelievers. Our family, at times, are unbelievers. We populate this country, but we're the minority. A lot of people claim to know Christ. Very few people are trying to follow Christ. Peter's original recipients were people who were going through hard times, and he wanted them not to run away from the hard times, but rather how he wanted to tell them how to navigate these challenges. How do you hang in there and live a victorious life, a life that pleases God, a life according to the will of God, even when everything is very hard? And that's ultimately what we're dealing with when we find ourselves at the end of chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Now, again, what we're studying goes back a little bit farther as I introduced this last week. We're dealing with a section that talks about the concept of submission, a hard word for Americans. It's actually a hard word for sinful human beings, but we have a sense of autonomy built into our constitutional foundations of our government that says, I get to do what I want to do. My life, my liberty, my happiness are the paramount consideration. It's about me. And Peter's not telling us how it should be about me. Peter's telling us how to die to me to live for Christ. So the idea of submission is a paramount theme of this particular area. We studied for several weeks. Even did a Q&A about submission to the government. Which is the emphasis beginning at verse 13 of chapter 2. And the idea is that we submit to the government. Even when the government's really, really bad. We would never submit if the government tells us to sin. But if the government says anything else. We're supposed to obey. Even if we don't like the government. Even if we think the government is corrupt. Even if we think... The leaders of the government are immoral, or ungodly, or wicked. We're still supposed to submit, and we covered that for many weeks. Verse 18 began a second category of submission, which for our applicational purposes have to do with the context of employment. But the idea originally was of household servants being submissive to their masters, even if their masters were unreasonable. And that idea of unreasonable was beyond just, well, they aren't very nice. They were morally perverse, they were crooked, they were wicked. And the servants who were believers were supposed to not only obey, but they're supposed to obey with the right heart attitude. That's really the focus, beginning at verse 18. In our context today, that means in the workplace, if we have employment, if we work jobs, we should be the very best employees there are. We should be the most submissive employees, the most obedient employees. Not just doing it so that we're left alone, but doing it as unto the Lord. Not just being man-pleasers, but we're doing this with wholehearted joy, even in hard circumstances, because we want the Lord to be honored. But last week, we began to talk beginning at verse 21, and verse 21 is intimately connected to this idea of the employment context, of submitting even to unreasonable masters. Follow along with me as I read. I'm going to begin at verse 21, and I'm going to read this section. Actually, I'm going to go back a little bit. I'll go back like I did last week and go back to verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience?" But, if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And He Himself bore our sins and His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds you have been healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. As we introduced this section last week, and I began to teach a little bit on the beginning verses we saw that an aspect of this is directly tied to what preceded. How do we live in the midst of injustice? What Peter is telling us and what we started to cover and what we will be covering is that we look to Christ. But part of what we also see is that injustice is a part and parcel of God's will for His children at times. I really believe that this text that we're covering is a cornerstone for all human relationships. Why do I say that? Because the world will always be unjust. Unless something dramatic happens, which biblically it's not going to happen on this earth, we'll always interact with sinners. Because that's what we are, even in our redeemed state. And we're surrounded by the unredeemed who are sinners as well. There's always going to be injustice. We're always going to have times where we can say that wasn't fair. That really could be the motto for America. That's not fair. That's the rallying cry for all Americans. It actually really is because that's why we had a revolution from the king of England. That's not fair. That's the birthplace of our country. And our entire constitutional system is set up to deal with that issue. But as believers, we're called to something a little bit different. So, I set this up last week as four truths for enduring injustice with godliness. As we go through this, it's just four truths for enduring injustice with godliness. The presupposition, obviously, is we are going to face injustice as we live our lives. At times, things are not going to be fair. It may be in the workplace... As we'll see in chapter 3, it may be in the marriage relationship. It could be in any other relationships. But how do we respond properly in the midst of injustice? The first thing was at the beginning of verse 21. And it's this, God's children are called to suffer. God's children are called to suffer. Verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. You've been called for this purpose. An aspect of our being God's children is to suffer. We were called by God. We didn't just on our own decide we're going to do something different. God called us. God used His Spirit to draw us to Christ. And part of that calling was to live according to what God ordains for His children and part of it is we suffer injustice, for you have been called for this purpose, again, tying directly into enduring unjust treatment at the hands of unreasonable masters. John 15:18 to 20 really summarizes the concept of what goes on in the world for God's children. Jesus said this: John 15 verses 18 to 20, "If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you." If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I think what Peter is doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he's showing us how do we live under the circumstances that Jesus himself described. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. If you're suffering for Jesus' sake, be it in the workplace, be it with your family, be it at the hands of bureaucrats or bureaucracy or corporate entities, if you're suffering for Christ's sake, it's proof that you're a child of God. I mean, everybody suffers. Suffering in and of itself is not the key. It's, are you doing it with a mind towards God? Are you calling on God in the midst of the suffering? Lord, help me be a testimony to you. In the midst of unfairness and justice, we shouldn't always resent circumstances, even though they are unfair, they are unjust, they are painful. We should at times think, the Lord, that he counted us worthy to suffer like his son. That's sort of a summary of the initial teaching from last week. The teaching is always online. You can go back and listen to it in more detail, but we're going to move on to our next point. Fourth truths for enduring injustice with godliness: first, God's children are called to suffer. We need to always remember that. The second is God's son is the perfect example. God's Son is the perfect example. This is one of those times where all of the Bible comes together. And I kept going over and over in my mind. Hebrews chapter 12, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. This is what is being taught. We're fixing our eyes on Jesus, but it's an aspect of what Jesus did. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, the second half of part 21 is where we kick in, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Peter wants us to realize in the midst of suffering that we, not only are we not alone, we have an example that shows it's possible to do everything we're being called to do. It's possible to submit in the face of injustice. It's possible to accept that this is God's will for you by looking to Jesus himself. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. It's a very graphic picture. The idea here is someone putting down a pattern for us to follow. Some of the scholars would say it's one of the uses of this root word would have been when you're teaching a child how to do the alphabet and you put a letter down and just trace around it. Okay? They've got something, an outline to follow specifically. And it's graphic imagery because on the one hand, his life is supposed to be that. We can trace what he did and we can use that as an example And we do that in essence almost like a roadmap following in his steps. We're supposed to walk like Jesus walked. That's familiar imagery. It's not a perfect analogy from our standpoint, but just think somewhere where you've gone and you can tell only one person's gone in front of you. You see the footprints or outlines. Well, how do I get from here to here safely? Follow the footsteps. Follow the footsteps. Try and walk as close to those steps as you can because you know ultimately that's the means of getting safely through. In Jesus' case, we can't have a better model. We can't have a better example. If you do what Jesus did, you are in the will of God. That's very comforting. Your job is to step where He stepped. To pattern your life after His example in every aspect of life. That's ultimately how we live victoriously. Is by walking as Jesus walked. Now I'm going to explain a little bit more what Jesus did. Because there's a, some negative components. He didn't do this. And there's a positive component. He did do that. In fact, probably from a time standpoint, I'll only get through the negative side of things this morning, but I don't want to miss what's being stated because it's not just a general, okay, we walk like Jesus walked, do what Jesus did. Paul said, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. In this context, there's a specific focus. This is when everything is bad. This is when there's injustice. This is when you're being mistreated where you've been treated unreasonably. This is supposed to show us how Jesus walked in the midst of the ultimate injustice. Definitely in the workplace, but beyond that in any human relationship. And when we come back in January and I start talking about marriage, because that's the focus of the beginning of chapter 3, I'm going to be hammering this point because this is what the marriage relationship comes back to. When... Shock of shocks, you find out you're married to a sinner. (laughs) So, in every type of human relationship, this is the example to follow. What did he not do? Well, Peter actually alludes to specific teaching from Isaiah 53, which we would be familiar with as the great passage of the suffering servant. But he says this beginning in verse 22. He's talking about what Jesus didn't do. He left us an example, and it says, Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Now, there's a lot in those words. Again, this is borrowing, particularly the first part. In my particular version of the Bible, there's sometimes where it's all capital letters. That normally means that's a quotation of some form from the Old Testament. And all of verse 22 is that in the version that I use. But the fact remains, this entire section, what he's saying here, there are allusions to Isaiah 53. And we're not only seeing Peter affirm that Jesus is the fulfillment of those verses, which we already have seen elsewhere in Scripture, But the content is showing us that even the prophetic word of Isaiah 53 has some applicability in how we live our lives today because the witness of Jesus that came before he walked on the earth in Isaiah 53 is true. It happened. And it has applicability because we're supposed to do the same thing. So he starts out, he says, Who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. This is really a loose translation of Isaiah 53, 9, the second part of it. Isaiah 53, 9 says this, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. We can follow that, Joseph of Arimathea, and place for him to put his grave. It says, but he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So who committed no sin corresponds to because he had done no violence. And the ultimate point of that loose translation is that Jesus never sinned, period. Throughout Scripture, you see that taught. Jesus never sinned. He was fully God. He was fully man. And yet walking on the earth fully man, he didn't sin. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus didn't know sin, but he died for sinners. In fact, he suffered for our sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. So part of Jesus example for us is tied into his sinlessness. Now, don't get tripped up by the obvious problem, which is we are sinful and we have sin and we continue to sin. No, the issue still applies to us because we still aspire to do what Peter said elsewhere, which is we're supposed to be holy as God is holy. First Peter 1, 14 to 16. I just paraphrased it. We're called to holiness, and we're called to holiness in the context of all of Scripture. But Peter is tying this together with what has just been said about suffering by a servant of an unreasonable master. This ties in with that example. Look back for just a moment at verses 19 to 20. And it has to do with did we suffer unjustly? It finds favor if for the sake of conscience a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. But then Peter immediately makes it clear, look, you don't get a pat on the back when you did wrong and you suffer the consequences for doing wrong. wrong. That, that's not commendable. You just got to pay your dues, so to speak. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. That was Jesus' example. He wasn't guilty. He committed no sin. We want to make sure as much as possible by God's enabling power, by the power of His Spirit, that we aspire and strive for holiness. Such that when we're suffering, it is unjust. Because if we're sinning, we're not following in Christ's example. And we're just getting what we deserve. So in our working environments, the most direct first applicability, don't sin. Don't sin at work. Don't give anyone a legitimate reason to discipline you as an employee. Don't engage in any type of misconduct, even if you think it's trivial. Follow the rules of your employer. And I speak from experience. I saw a lot of people not do that. That's why I had a job for all those years. I represented management. And I always said if you were in a meeting with me, it was always bad for you because they were never bringing me in because it was good news. You were in trouble. Make sure that your behavior isn't a legitimate reason for them to come after you. Do what Jesus did. Try not to sin. No, let me say that again. Don't sin. Jesus didn't try. He succeeded. Again, it's always good to remember, and we're going to emphasize this more later, Jesus didn't die because he was guilty. He died because we were guilty. But his punishment wasn't fair. It wasn't just. Everything he suffered was an injustice because he committed no sin. Second part of that, though, again from Isaiah 53, 9, and it's almost a direct quotation, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now, in one sense, this is saying the same thing, meaning Jesus didn't sin with his words, but it goes beyond that. In fact, the next verses, I think, are explanatory. But it makes it clear, Jesus... Did not sin with the spoken word. He never sinned in what he said, period. All his years on earth, 30 plus years of life as a child, all the way into adulthood, in the face of all kinds of things, he never sinned by his speech. He never lied. He never was dishonest. He never engaged in any type of sinful speech ever. I memorized as a new believer because I knew could have been a life verse where words are many, sin is not absent. It's a proverb. I can't tell you which one. I forget the verse reference. But that's what I do is talk. And I talked before I was a lawyer. On family trips when I was a boy, they tried to bribe me by playing a quiet game. Hey, see how long you can be quiet a yeah. quarter of a mile I lost I didn't want the money I wanted to talk where words are many sin is not absent and yet Jesus never sinned nor was any deceit found in his mouth this really is a reflection of Jesus character Jesus said in Luke 6.45, The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. The next time you utter something in frustration that you know was wrong, recognize that that's just showing there's still a lot in your heart that needs to be cleaned out. Praise the Lord that you have a new heart, that you don't have a heart of stone anymore, but it's just a reminder when you blurt something out or you say a word or you think a word, just a reminder there's work to be done. But it shows that Jesus' heart was pure. He did utter what came out of his heart, but it was all good. There was no deceit. Peter is proving through the life of Jesus the truth of something that the half-brother of Jesus, James said, in James 3, 2, you can just write down the reference, James 3, 2 says, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. That was Jesus, the only person who ever did that. For life amongst us, that's more of a rhetorical ideal, Jesus lived it. So, what is our example? We have to be cautious and careful with how we speak. Holiness does not stop at our lips, it's not just about our conduct, it's about what we say as well. And that's always where you can look to see how much sanctification you have left, is what pops out of your mouth when you're frustrated. So in the workplace, be careful with what you say. Don't be a gossip. Don't slander other people. Don't spread strife. Don't spread division. Don't be the malcontent who's always mouthing off about everything with an opinion on everything. Another proverb that I learned early on, and this one I wrote down, Proverbs 30.10, do not slander a slave to his master. Told me, particularly in my role I had to be careful about what I said about an employee to their boss. I had to make sure I was absolutely right. I had to be very circumspect before I just mouthed off an opinion about such and so. But again, it transcends the workplace. In fact, when we deal with the marriage relationship in the next chapter, it keeps referring back to this Jesus example. It's astonishing. Jesus did this in every aspect of his life. He did it when he was dealing with people who were hard-headed. He was dealing with it when he had to repeat himself and teach the same things over and over. He did it when he was misunderstood. And he did it when he was suffering injustice, when things truly were not fair. In fact, that's sort of the third negative here. Verse 23, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. This isn't necessarily referring to a particular word. It's more likely referring to a chapter in history. When Jesus was brought before the religious leaders and was being falsely accused with his life on earth on the line. I'll give you a couple of references. I chose references from Matthew. But for example, in Matthew chapter 26, you can read verses 65 to 68. Matthew 27, verses 12 to 14. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophet, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Matthew 27. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Put yourself for just a moment, and it's impossible to completely do it. But it's possible on a human standpoint, an imperfect analogy of our lives You are innocent, you've done nothing wrong, and everybody's accusing you. You're on trial for your life, you want to please the Lord, you're being accused of blasphemy against the Lord. Now add to it, not just the sneering, vile accusations that you know in your heart of hearts are false, but people are spitting in your face while they're saying them. Slapping you. I think for any of us, we'd find out how much sanctification remained. Trying not to use profanity as we defend ourselves. Would you want to lash out? Of course you would. Hold on a second. I am innocent. Because we're Americans, you'd have a room full of lawyers you want to call on your behalf. Hey, tell them. Defend me. Of course you'd want to defend yourself against the injustice of it all, because it can't be true. It's not fair. You can't do this to me. I don't deserve it. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. He didn't lash out. He didn't say, the things that we might have thought of I'm gonna come back to this and talk some more. But the fact remains for believers there's never a time for us to hit back verbally. Again, there may be a legal process that you can follow where you're legitimately entitled to do something. The Apostle Paul used his rights as Roman citizen and appealed at one point. Doesn't mean there's never a circumstance, but what it does mean is in your heart of hearts, you can't revile back. Grumbling in your heart or mouthing off to others. It's never okay to hit back. Again, think about that in the context of human reactions and think about that if you're married. There's never an opportunity to retaliate verbally. Jesus never stooped to their level. Continuing on, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Jesus suffered in ways that we can't imagine when the Father turned His face away. I don't even remember the specific verses, but when Pastor Steve years ago taught on that, I understood in a way I never had the isolation of the Son when the wrath was poured out on Him. But this isn't talking about that end of time. He's talking about all the things leading up to it. We've already talked about where Jesus was punched in the face and he was spat on and they were slapping him. But there was more suffering. Matthew 27, 26 to 31 is what I'm going to read but there's more you could find. It says, Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, right there, that's an abusive, violent thing that rips up the human body. But after having Jesus scurved, it's just a throwaway, it's an afterthought, he turned him over, handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus in the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him down and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, which in and of itself would have hurt. and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him, and took the reed, and began to beat him on the head, which would have driven the spikes into his head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off of him, and put his own garments back on him, and they led him away to crucify him. Again, put yourself in that unimaginable situation, excruciating physical torment. It was torture. Can you imagine the outrage you would feel as they're striking you, as they're spitting on you, as they're hitting you? Now we're going to take it a step farther. Imagine you're in that situation and you could do something about it. You have the power. They're the guilty ones. They're abusing authority. You know it's a travesty, and you could end it in a heartbeat. In Matthew 26:52 to 53, Jesus made a statement at the time of his arrest where Peter got a little carried away with a sword and was going to fight off the people. Verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Verse 53. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, this isn't a power issue. At a word, I've got more power than anybody can imagine. You look biblically at the power of angels, what they've done at different times, how a few avenging angels would decimate hundreds of thousands of Old Testament armies. And Jesus says basically, look, i got unlimited resources at my disposal. Just settle down. Because he knew God's will. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Again, this is our example. Restraining ourselves, accepting that it may be God's will that in this circumstance I endure injustice like my Savior. I can tell you from my flesh I would not want to respond like Jesus responded. You think about it. Jesus didn't say, Okay, guys, keep it up. You're going to pay. I'm going to get you all because I know you're not the elect. I can't wait until the day of judgment. You remember that. You just hit me. I got your name. You're not in the book of life. Just wait. I can't wait. None of that. What's incomprehensible is of soldiers who were abusing him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That's the attitude we're supposed to take into our lives. When we're suffering injustice, the idea is to not call down the fire of heavens, Lord, smite this infidel. I would say, Lord, help me be a witness. Of course it's unfair. Of course it's injustice. It's interesting because Jesus is the center of everything, and yet at that moment, He held his tongue. In the face of abuse, he was humble and obedient to the will of the Father. His body hurt. He suffered. He was in agony. And yet, he didn't resort to the deeds of the flesh. He didn't resort to accusing. He didn't resort to, I'm going to get you back. Everything in us says, you should pay for what you did when we're treated badly. Goodness, somebody gets something wrong at a restaurant, we want the manager out there, because I've got to get this right. I asked for no mayonnaise, and look at the mayonnaise. It's just wired into us. It's all about me and what I want. And when I'm suffering injustice, when I'm innocent, that just can't be. We need to stop the presses. We need justice. But that wasn't the example that Jesus left us. He committed no sin. He never uttered a deception. And while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. We need to think back through how we respond to any type of inconvenience. I'm going to cover the next time I teach the key to this, because Jesus wasn't just haphazard. The end of verse 23 is the key for all of us. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept trusting himself to him who judges righteously. God the Son trusted the will of God the Father. That's ultimately our example. We're going to dig into that a little bit more. But what I've seen over and over in my own heart is I don't want to turn to God, I want to turn to me. I want some here and now, satisfaction. I see it all the time with married couples. I've been married for a long time. I still struggle with reacting badly when I'm inconvenienced. Because again, King Joe should have everything his way. <laughs> After 25 plus years, shouldn't you know that by now? That is just such wicked selfishness. And that's how we all are. And when our spouse doesn't treat us well. And when we don't get what we want. It all comes back to the example of Jesus. And we have to learn. And I look forward to talking through this in the weeks to come. But we have to learn that we don't have to take care of our issues. But we entrust ourselves to our Heavenly Father who loved us and called us. Let me close this time with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. In many respects, Lord, I cannot relate to the example of Christ. I'm not sinless. More often than not, I should have been treated worse than I'm treated, I've seen your Grace in so many circumstances where I didn't get what I deserved. And Lord, I know I don't control my lips. I thank you that I do better than I did as an unbeliever, but I know how much I still struggle with what pops out of my mouth. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for every one of my brothers and sisters in the room that we could follow the pattern of Jesus. Lord, even after being saved for many years, sometimes we are still like kids learning the alphabet, and we need to be able to trace a pattern in a letter. Lord, help us see that in Christ. Help us to be able to walk in His steps. Lord, by Jesus' own words, He always did the will of the Father. If we follow Him, we're doing Your will, and that's what we ultimately want. I pray, Lord, for those here today who are currently suffering injustice. Maybe it's in the workplace. Maybe it's in a relationship with a bureaucracy. Maybe it's in a relationship with their family. Maybe it's even between husband and wife. Lord, I pray that you would help us see beyond ourselves, that you would help us see Christ and that you would help us, Lord, to be able to follow his example. And to trust that you know what's best for us, even when it's hard. We love you, Lord. And we pray that you'll continue to work in our hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.